for Your Darkness, a first responder mental health podcast hosted by me, Erin Jane, where we have conversations about what it's like to perform a first responder role and the mental health challenges that can accompany it. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Will Hold Space for Your Darkness. I'm your host, Erin Jane, and today we are joined by Mr. Michael Suguru. Michael is a six and a half year Air Force veteran. Um, with experience with the prestigious uh, Phoenix Ravens. Um, and he was also a, a police sergeant in the Walnut Creek Police Department out in California for 14 years, where he medically retired in 2018. Michael is also the co-author of Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma with uh, Shauna Docspringer. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Michael. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, brilliant. Um, so I would really actually love to hear, um, I will just tell the audience, I've, I've listened to, to Michael's book, so some things I will be asking him, like I already know it, and that's probably because I do. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about your, your Air Force experience, if I can, because just the overview is unbelievable of um, uh, global force protection, anti-terrorism, nuclear security, uh, Air-based ground defense, security forces, you served all through the Middle East, Europe, South America. Um, I, you know, I don't even have time to go through it all. Would you love to, love to share a little bit about your experience in the Air Force? Sure. So um, I actually, in college, I did the ROTC program, which is the Reserve Officer Training Corps. Mm -hmm. I had a full scholarship to California State University. I graduated in 1998 and I was commissioned as a second lieutenant or a mm -hmm. butter bar, which a lot of people like to refer to us. <laughs> and uh, I got my first choice, which is security forces. That's the, the main kind of over-ranging name of the career field. But it entails a lot of different things, like you mentioned, like force protection, anti-terrorism, basic law enforcement on base, um, nuclear security, foreign airfield assessments. Um, we're basically like the infantry of the Air Force. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's the easiest way to equate it. We do a lot of army training. Um, there's a lot of weapons training, but we're overall responsible for the security and the protection of all Air Force bases, of course, in the United States, mm -hmm. but also overseas in any location. We are the ones that are responsible for protecting everybody on that base, all the personnel, all the aircraft, all the resources, all the assets. Mm -hmm. And it was phenomenal. I have to tell you that even my very first assignment in security forces, I was in charge of nuclear security and I was in charge of mm -hmm. 60 people. Mm -hmm. And we would go out three and a half days at a time. We'd deploy out to these nuclear missile fields in Nebraska, in Wyoming, two different states. And it was awesome. I mean, literally it was like I was in charge. There was a lot of responsibility, but I had phenomenal, phenomenal NCOs or non-commissioned officers that I worked with airmen and there was a steep learning curve you know mm -hmm. um, just because i had a college degree and just because i did this air force training there was a lot to learn and i would say yeah. that most most of my learning actually came on the job and it came you know with other people and i really mm -hmm. owe it early on to one of my senior sergeants because he really took me under his wing he mentored me he taught me things he taught me how to gain respect from the people that i supervise and truly had a lead not yeah. just to manage and supervise, but how to lead. Um, yeah. Eventually, I got into the Phoenix Raven program, which is one of my proudest achievements. And that happened. I was a young captain. I was stationed mm -hmm. in California. And it had been a long time dream of mine. It was just one of those things where I wanted to prove myself. And I yeah. wanted to show those that I led that I could do this. And so yeah. the Phoenix Raven program is a subset of security forces members. And basically, they do things like, um, air marshal duties on like contracted aircraft. They do foreign airfield assessments, but primarily they're responsible for the aircraft and the air crew when they deploy to hostile areas where there is no embedded security or force protection. They literally are in charge of protecting that entire air crew when they're on the ground in hostile environments. Yeah. And I was not involved with this because I was already out, but the Phoenix Ravens were literally some of the last people in Afghanistan 
when they evacuated all those aircraft yeah. filled with all the people leaving that base. And so um, yeah. I think to date, the program's been around for over 20 years, but mm-hmm. um, when you graduate the Phoenix Raven program, you're given a number mm-hmm. and that number is in order. Uh, mine was 1173. And to date, I think they only have about 3,300 people that have ever been through this program. Wow. So it's not a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the training was very intensive, um, very physically demanding. You had to be in, in very good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved it. I mean, I look back now and I, I truly miss my time in the Air Force. My my biggest regret, honestly, is is getting out. I wish yeah. that I would have stayed in the reserves. Okay. Uh, because I was, regardless, I was going to get out and go into civilian law enforcement. But mm-hmm. I wish I would have stayed connected to the military because I had a lot of friends that did that yeah. and who are still serving right now. And mm-hmm. it, I just look back and nothing but fond memories. So just great, great yeah. times. Yeah. And I mean, it really sounds like such a, not only an important role, but, and like a prestigious one, but like you're saying, and something that you said to me really resonated. You're like, you had a superior that taught you not just how to kind of command troops but how to lead them how to get their respect and people will follow you off the edge of a cliff if they know that you are going to support them and and lead them and be their leader as opposed to like their quote-unquote boss absolutely yeah no that makes so much sense um and so what you said you know you have sort of some regrets about not you know perhaps transitioning to like the reservist thing what made you want to leave at that 60 mark was that when your commission ended or well honestly i was only going to do four years so when i accepted my college scholarship it was only a four-year commitment and then they actually offered me an assignment in germany Mm -hmm. which i wasn't going to turn down and then 9-11 happened when i was in germany and so that Mm -hmm. extended my time commitment and Mm -hmm. i decided to stay in longer and so when I got my last duty assignment was actually back here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. I actually live about 15 minutes from the last base I served at. And mm-hmm. so when I came back, you know, I was back with my friends, my family. I already had plans to get out. I started applying to different police agencies mm-hmm. all over the area and I got a job offer. And so it was okay. at that point that I decided I was going to leave my Air Force yeah. service. Okay. Yeah. Um, and. So it sounds like, and from listening to your book, your stepfather was a, a very lovely and wonderful influence on you. And he was a police officer and it sounded like um, his just beautiful example really inspired you to to want to follow in, in those footsteps. He did. Um, you know, my stepfather actually knew me my whole life. So mm-hmm. um, he was actually friends with my father in high school. and. Yeah. Um, eventually my parents got divorced and then he came into, in our life in a different role. Mm-hmm. And from day one, I mean, he accepted me as his own son and he was a, a phenomenal husband to my mother. Eventually I had a couple more brothers and, um, I really looked up to him. I mean, physically mm-hmm. he was six foot three, but I looked up to him because he really taught me what it meant to be a man, you know, yeah. to be a father, to be a leader. And mm-hmm. At the age of eight years old, I actually became a police volunteer at his first police department. And I loved it. And, you know, at eight years old, it's not like you're doing that much. It was like filing paperwork and washing <laughs> patrol cars. And yeah. the big thing was like riding in the parade with McGruff every year. That was like the highlight. Yeah. Uh, but then fast forward to my high school years, he had switched departments to a much bigger agency mm-hmm. in a very dangerous city, um, Richmond, California, which is also in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was a police explorer in high school. And that was the point where I really got to see the police work and the camaraderie Mm -hmm. because I was doing ride-alongs. We had meetings. There was actually like a mini police academy that we had to go through that was specifically for explorers. Mm -hmm. I would do things like um, parking control and security at fairs and festivals and events. And I knew at that point, like, this is what I'm going to do. And Mm -hmm. My original plan, though, was to go into federal law enforcement. So I was thinking okay. like the FBI, the DEA, maybe U.S. Marshals. Yeah. And so I always had a plan that I would go into the Air Force, I would get my degree, and then I would start applying to federal agencies. But okay. again, when I was in the Air Force, I worked with some of these federal agencies, and I quickly realized that it wasn't as exciting or all that I thought it was really made out to be. And I. Yeah. I wanted to be on the grounds like every day in a uniform, 
driving a black and white patrol car, like going to calls, dealing with people. I didn't want to be stuck in an office, yeah. you know, dealing with paperwork and prolonged investigations. Like I really wanted to be out there just in the mix, having fun, doing the job yeah. day in and day out. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense. So was the, the pivot towards the Air Force, like kind of basically purely to go down the path to get a degree? Well, no, I wouldn't say that because my, um, my grandfather was actually in the Army Air Corps before ah, it became the okay. actual Air Force. Yeah. And I remember as a young kid, I, I really looked up to him and I mm-hmm. remember seeing pictures of him in his uniform and I was always like in awe of his medals. And I actually, I either dressed up as a cop or a soldier pretty much like every Halloween <laughs> that, I, that I can remember. I mean, except yeah. for maybe a teenager, but as a young child, yeah. you know, I just, even as a young child, I was always playing with like soldiers and yeah. army toys. And so, um, no, there was definitely a, a calling to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I wanted to do both. And okay. that's why I picked security forces because yeah. that's basically military police. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're getting to do both at the same time. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. And sounds like you had some beautiful influences in your life from from a very young age absolutely yeah tremendous mother tremendous father you know stepfather grandfather Mm -hmm. and truly blessed that's wonderful um and so the process to um go from like the air force to the the police department how was how was that for you and and how was it sort of coming back and readjusting to society after you know being deployed in different places um, you know, there was a transition that had to take place. Cause as you can imagine, I was a captain. Mm-hmm. I was literally in charge of tons of people. I had a lot of responsibility and I had to leave all of that and yeah. go to a police academy where literally I was treated like nothing. Really? And yeah, down the bottom of the yeah, totem pole. <laughs> exactly. And so it was like, yeah. basically like boot camp all over. And yeah. I had actually gone through army officer boot camp. I went through mm-hmm. air force boot camp. So this is like my third boot camp, and yeah. I wouldn't say it was easy. Um, it was it was definitely challenging, but I think because of my military experience, I definitely had a leg up. Yeah, and I was you know I was already very physically fit. I mean, I had gone to Raven training a year earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the difference was is that learning the difference between like military law and civilian law, and also yeah. realizing that in the military there's a lot more black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in civilian law enforcement, there's a lot more discretion yeah. and I would say there's a lot more leeway in decision-making, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to like arrest somebody. There's no, yeah, there's no question, but other times you can give them a ticket, you can give them a warning. Um, you know, there's all, all kinds of options. So that definitely yeah. was a learning curve as well. Yeah, that makes sense. There was a, there was a guy who was in my academy squad and he was like 20 army veterans. So obviously very ingrained and he kept getting in trouble when we were doing firearms training. Cause in the army, he got taught like the, the, the double tap, like boom, boom. And in our civilian life, you have to justify every single shot that you do. So he kept like doing the double tap and just every single time it took him ages to like get out of that habit. I don't know if he ever did, to be honest. Well, that reminds me of like the radio transmissions because we had a different phonetic alphabet. So like oh, in, in the military, you know, you have Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, mm-hmm. but in civilian law enforcement, it's like Adam, Boy, Charles. It's a totally different phonetic oh, alphabet. Wow. So that was that was that definitely a learning a curve because too. it was like so ingrained in my mind. Yeah, of always speaking on the yeah. radio in the military, and now here I am in civilian law enforcement. See, that's so funny. So you just made me realize that in the police force I worked for, we use the military one. We don't yes. use the other one. So clearly, would have been a lot easier. <laughs> yes, else. definitely. Um, and so yeah, so tell me about. Um, did you you just worked for this one police force, Walnut Creek, in California? I did. Although I was actually assigned, so I was at the police department. And I went to go work for a regional drug task force, which was actually run by the state okay. department of justice. So it's basically like the DEA for the state of California. Mm-hmm. And I actually worked in a totally different city in a different location with officers that were also from other agencies. So it was almost like leaving my department for a couple of years. And yeah. eventually I came back, okay. but, but technically I was always working for the Walnut Creek police department. So yes. Basically like, like a secondment to a task force. So they like, yes. Pull, yeah. Resources yes. from all over. Yeah. 
And that was a dream come true. I mean, that was mm -hmm. phenomenal. And I got to work in all kinds of different areas, yeah. different parts of the state. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, the drug stuff often is. Um, and so at what point then did you, cause I think you were, you said that you were a sergeant. At what point did you ascend to that rank? Was that rather quickly for you, given all of your security forces experience in the air force? So with my path, I started civilian law enforcement in 2004, and mm -hmm. I would say within a year and a half, I was a field training officer. Okay. And I did that for a few years. Mm -hmm. Then I was promoted to the special agent on the drug task force. Mm -hmm. And then I was also an internal detective for a mm -hmm. special investigative unit. Mm -hmm. And I was promoted to sergeant um, about a little bit less than eight years on. I was okay. promoted to sergeant. And at the time, that was pretty quick. Um, that was yeah. considered fast. Um, I got promoted over people that were much more senior to me. Mm -hmm. And so my career at that point was, it was on track. It was literally going where I wanted to go and I wanted to be chief of police someday. Yeah. Wow. Lot that very, very lofty aspirations and you're such a motivated person. It, it sounds uh, right up your alley. <laughs> I'm not as motivated as I used to be, but yes, at the time <laughs> I... I look back and I don't know how I did it all. Now I'm more in like retirement mode. I'm more like in <laughs> yeah, no stress. Yeah, you're going to beard. You're like, yes. you know, just chilling. <laughs> I'm just chilling. I want to relax. I don't want any stress. Like, I don't, I'm not aspiring to do anything now. I'm just, I just want to live life. So that's my goal now. <laughs> that's all right. Well, you are, you, you've gone through a lot in your time, Michael. So I feel like you, you were, this is a well-deserved uh, little, little step back for you. Agreed. Um, and so I would, uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love to, um, pivot. So in, uh, late December, 2012, so you would have been what, eight years on the job, probably close to being promoted to Sergeant and you were involved in an officer involved shooting. Yeah, I was actually a brand new Sergeant. So I'd been brand promoted November of 2012. And oh, we had kind of before. like an, an informal, like training process where we rode around with other Sergeants before. We got yeah. our own team and December 20, the day after Christmas, December 26, 2012, mm -hmm. I was on my second solo shift as a patrol sergeant. So it was basically like my second full week of mm -hmm. running a patrol team and I had yeah. minimum staffing. Uh, but that night, yeah, I was involved in a very tragic incident. Um, I go into great detail about it in the book, but to mm -hmm. make a long story short for this purpose, there was a man with a, a large butcher knife that was trying to kill a couple inside a condominium mm -hmm. or an apartment. And we got there. I was first on scene. Another officer and I ran towards the, the condo. The woman was screaming for her life. And eventually we got inside and this armed subject with a knife then turned his attention towards us and tried mm -hmm. to kill us. And so unfortunately we had to take his life, not only okay. to save our own lives, but to save the couple that was barricaded upstairs in their bedroom inside this condominium. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's the action that you have had to take because as police officers, we always know that it's a possibility, but everyone thinks that it's something that we want to do, but it's legitimately the last thing that we ever want to do. True. And there's also a big misconception that police officers are involved in shootings all the time. And, you know, most police officers are never, involved in a shooting in their entire career, you know, 20, 30 year career, yeah. and especially to be involved in a fatal shooting. It's yeah. less than 1% of all police officers are ever involved in that. Yeah, exactly. And a, a, a sad and, and tragic group to be a part of, unfortunately. Um, so you, you stated in your book that, um, after the officer involved shooting, you sort of had a feeling like, the process afterwards of when you are involved in, in a shooting as a police officer that you kind of felt like you were treated like a criminal. Would you be able to expand on that a little bit for me? Yeah. Um, you know, and the thing is, we, we know what's coming. You know, we train for this. We talk about it. But the mm -hmm. fact is, when you're involved in a police shooting, you are a suspect. You're a suspect yeah. in a homicide. Yeah. When a life has been lost or a life has been taken, it has to be investigated to the fullest. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we want to make sure that everyone's complying with the law, that everything was done correctly, mm -hmm. um, that this action, which nobody wants to take, was done, you know, justifiably. So yeah. 
that being said, yeah, you know, from the minute after it happens and I was relieved, you know, you have to go through this investigative process where they collect your uniform, mm-hmm. they collect your gun belt, you know, your taser, your gun, your magazines, everything, your entire uniform. They take photos of you. They check your hands for gun residue. Um, you get your rights read to you. You have an attorney. Eventually you get interviewed or interrogated where, you know, they're asking you what happened. And um, it is basically like being a criminal. And yeah. in addition to the, what we would call the district attorney investigation, there's also the mm-hmm. internal investigation, which in this case was two parallel investigations going on at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And even though this was a justified shooting, even though we saved lives, we were sued almost immediately. So then I also had to endure a four-year federal lawsuit where I actually ended up in court as a defendant in San Francisco in 2016. So just this whole process of this incident that I wanted to forget, I couldn't forget it. I had to remember every finite detail because I ended up in court and I had to know it all, you know, so I couldn't push it away. I couldn't forget about it. And that's part of what made this process so difficult. Yeah. And that's, that's completely understandable. And, and as well, um, I think you said that there was like a, like, was there a coroner's inquest as well? Or was that part of the other investigation? Yeah. So for me, there was a district attorney um, investigation. There was an internal investigation. The coroner's inquest is part of the process. That's a civil proceeding Mm -hmm. where there's a judge, there's a jury, it's open to the public, but the whole purpose is to kind of shed light on what happened to give the public some of these details to be more transparent so they mm-hmm. can, can, can learn what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's literally like a little mini trial, if you want to say, where you have to go yeah. up there, you have to testify and you have to relive this whole event again. Yeah. And obviously having to take action where you're choosing your life over, over someone else's that's either trying to cause yourself harm or, or other members of the public. And we know that that is, you know, part of our role as, as police officers, but, and I can only imagine, cause I haven't been through it myself, like how, you know, trauma can, and overwhelming that can feel. And, and even though, you know, you know that you've done something that's justified, it can still almost feel like a, a moral injury because you're going against, you know, taking another person's life, which can feel awful, but then to have it dragged out in the way that it was like with the civil trial for years and years and years for you. Like I can't even imagine what that would have done to your mental health. Well, the fact is that, you know, I still have to deal with this incident today, you know, many years Mm -hmm. later, and we're actually coming up on the anniversary. And unfortunately for me, every year I equate Christmas with almost dying and with the shooting. And so where most people get excited about the holidays and putting up decorations. Mm -hmm. And I do that for my daughter's sake, but I don't, I don't like the holidays and I have a lot of bad memories associated with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even though the shooting was justified, I have to live with the fact that I took a life, that I took somebody's son away from them, somebody's brother away from them. And what makes it so difficult in this case, and, and we go into great detail in the book about this is that, up until that incident, this person was a good person. They weren't a criminal. They didn't have a record. Um, there was no history of mental illness. He was well-liked, well-loved. And to this day, we don't know why this young man did what he did that night. We don't know. And that's what makes this, for me, so much more difficult. Because I yeah. think that had this been some hardened criminal, some gangbanger, some serial killer, some rapist, it probably wouldn't be as difficult for me, but since we don't know why this man again was a good young man up until that moment and he gave us no choice, we had no choice except to live and to save that couple. That's the only choice that we had or to die. And that was it. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And so was that sort of the point in your career where things sort of really like started to spiral in a sense for you? Absolutely. It was a big tipping point for me. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the fact is, is that like, I would say all police officers, 
we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our career. And so at that point, mm-hmm. I'd been on for eight years. I had been to tons of traumatic incidents from, you know, fatal car accidents mm-hmm. to homicides, to suicides, to mm-hmm. sexual assault cases, you know, child abuse, horrific car accidents, all these things. But I never talked about them. I never like humanized what I saw and what I was dealing with. I just pushed it away. I shut it off. I pretended like none of this stuff's ever going to bother me. I disassociated from it. And instead, what we should be doing is we should be talking about this stuff and getting it off our shoulders, getting it off our chest Mm -hmm. as it happens, you know, just acknowledge the humanity of it and to express that it bothered us and why. But for me, I felt this immense pressure that that would be weakness, that if I ever talked about my feelings, if I ever talked about being affected by these incidents, that people would look down upon me, that they would see me as inferior, as weak. And that's not the case. You know, the the facts are that this is, we see so much abnormally, so much evil, so much darkness. And what's normal is talking about that when it happens. That's what's normal. What's abnormal is shutting it off not talking about it, pushing everybody away and not having healthy relationships where you can have these open lines of communications. And that's where I messed up because early on in my career, I made a decision that I would never bring work home. I would never talk about the job. And so when my shooting happened, I didn't have this established healthy relationship with my wife at the time. We're now divorced Mm -hmm. because I didn't talk about the job. When I came home pissed off or in a bad mood, You know, she's walking around in eggshells because she thought it was something she did. She didn't realize it was something horrific that I saw that day. And I was just trying to deal with it myself instead of just, you know, trying to have her help me and get this off my chest. Yeah. And I think that's, that's incredibly common when it comes to relationships with, with first responders, like so, so common. Unfortunately Um, it is. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned about in your book that when it came to the um, 12 month mark after the shooting that you were involved in, that you got to a stage where you were really struggling with your mental health to the point where you were having suicidal ideation. Um, are you able to, to tell us a little bit about that and what, what brought you to that point? Yeah. And it, it wasn't a year after the shooting. I would say it oh, okay. was, um, I would say it was longer after that. It was almost four years. It was actually um, after going through the federal trial because that two-week trial really took a toll on me. And at that Mm -hmm. point, um, I kind of told myself the whole time that once I get through this trial, once it's over, and as long as we prevail, which Mm -hmm. we did, that all my problems go away, my life would get better. But it didn't. It actually got much worse for me. And that's where I got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. And I started Mm -hmm. purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I got killed in the line of duty, you know, so hoping instead of suicide by cop, I was hoping for suicide by bad guy. And so I started putting my tactics, my officer safety, my training, my, my good decision-making, I put Mm -hmm. it to the side and I just didn't care about that. And I I wanted to rush in to scenes. I wanted to be the first one there. Mm -hmm. I literally wanted to die. Yeah. And that, it's just unimaginable for you how how much pain you must have been into to be putting yourself in that in that situation and i'm sorry that you went through that um, it was and you know the thing is i look back now and, and i'll be honest with you like and when people read this book or listen to it they're going to hear all the horrific things that i had to go through i mean we're not even going to be able to hit the tip of the iceberg on this interview but mm-hmm. looking back now today in 2023 i wouldn't change a single thing because that put me where I'm supposed to be today. And I'm on this mission of smashing the stigma of talking about mental health. And so as horrific as that was, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm now living a whole new life. Like I eventually did ask for help and I started this journey of recovery from post-traumatic stress injury versus Mm -hmm. disorder, what I like to call it. And it wasn't easy and it took a lot of work. It took a lot of time, but now today, I have a phenomenal life. You know, I have a great relationship with mm-hmm. my daughter, with my girlfriend, with my family, and I'm truly living life to the fullest. Yeah. 
And that's wonderful. And I think that that is such a strong and powerful message for other people, not only just first responders, but people in the community as well, just to be able to go like you were really at a point where you were struggling and you were at the depths of perhaps depression and PT, you know, PTSI and all that kind of thing. And to show that it doesn't have to be the end and that you can survive and you can thrive and you can really have, you know, that even that post-traumatic growth experience to be living, albeit different, but sometimes a better life. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that this book in collaboration with Dr. Springer, it shows the power of what can be done with a culturally competent clinician or therapist and you know it is a a dark i mean deep just gripping story but it ends with light it ends with hope and it shows a pathway to healing and you know the recovery process is different for everybody and not one single thing works for everybody it's usually a combination Mm -hmm. of different things yeah but that's the fact is that you have to try you have to have an open mind and it takes patience It takes stamina because the longer that you wait to seek help, the longer it's going to take to recover. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And on a, on a personal note, like listening, sorry, I, I chose to listen to Michael's book because I really like to hear it from the person who actually wrote it. And I'd like to hear it spoken by them. And I think it makes it a little bit more impactful. And, um, there was a point where you mentioned when you were going through that really challenging time and, and you mentioned one of the things that really helped pull you through was the love for your daughter and that you really just wanted to be here for her and all that kind of thing. And, you know, from a personal sense, like I am the daughter of a father who completed suicide. And so to actually hear you make a different choice, it really resonated with me. And and I think that one day, whenever your daughter is old enough to to perhaps hear about your experience, I think it's something that she's really going to appreciate and really going to cherish because I know that I definitely would have if, if that person in my life had made a different choice. So I really want to commend you on that because I think it's, I think it's beautiful that the love that you had for your daughter helped you in that way. And I will tell you, I actually had my daughter already read this book. So my daughter actually is 13. And when this book came out, she was, 11 and a half. And um, I can tell that after she read it, you know, she had this real look of concern. And I had to make it very clear that, you know, that's where I was. It's not where I am today. And um, I I know when she's older, she's going to reread it or re-listen to it. And I think it's going to hit her a little bit differently. But I also wanted her to read it at this age because I want her to know that you know, sometimes we all have these feelings of depression or sadness. Um, you know, mm-hmm. some p- people have suicidal thoughts. And the thing is that there's help and yeah. it's okay to talk about this stuff. And so I'm I'm truly hoping that, you know, with the things that she goes through as a teenager, I know that can be very difficult, especially for mm-hmm. girls, that she sees me as example to say, look, my father, he needed help and he asked for it. And And I pray that, you know, if she ever does need help, she will also do the same. And that's why when it comes to this book, it's not just for first responders. It's not just for military people. It's for their family. It's for their loved ones. It's for their spouses, their partners, their children, even their parents. This book is for everybody. It lets them see the true human behind the badge and behind the uniform. Yeah, no, and that makes complete sense. And and it's, it's wonderful that you you know, made the decision to put yourself out there and your story out there, because I can imagine even coming on and having conversations with this and going and giving presentations in, you know, the way that you do, it would, it would take a toll every time you do it. So I think it's really commendable that you, you still do it irrespective of, of how difficult it might be for you on certain days. And it is, and I'll tell you, honestly, I hate public speaking. Um, I actually get extreme anxiety. I get nervous. I get stressed out, but I know that after I do it, when I have people lined up to talk with me and when I make, you know, new friends and and new relationship with people and they open up to me, that's what makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Um, And and that gives other people the power to to share their story because Mm -hmm. we all have a story. I don't care who's listening to this interview or watching it. You have a story. It Mm -hmm. doesn't matter where you come from, what you do for a living. 
we all have a story. And by sharing our story, not only is it healing for us, but it's healing for other people. And that's where we change the culture. We normalize talking about this stuff. We just make it normal, you know, say, Hey, yeah, let's talk about it. You know, and and I, and what I found is I used to be very judgmental people. I used to be very black and white. It was like, if you broke the law, you're going to jail. I didn't care why, if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, you know, I look down upon you. Now that's not Mm -hmm. the case. Now I know there's reasons for all of this. You know, there is pure evil, but most people are not evil. Most people that even commit crimes do it because they're in a situation where they have no other choice or they're, you know, come from such trauma that it's led them down this path. And so now when I meet people, I don't ever judge them. I don't judge them on what they've done, uh, on what they're doing. You know, I look at them differently and I, and I want to find out like, why is this the case? What is going on with them? How can we change this? How can we turn their life around? Yeah. No, that's, and that's, very commendable because especially yeah coming from coming from a copper's mindset it is like I mean sometimes it helps us help save our lives to be judgmental because you have to have that really quick you know split second decision making but then when you kind of step away from that kind of career to still be like a judgmental asshole it doesn't serve us well all the time yes now don't get me wrong like I do still have to judge people <laughs> Very quickly. I mean, when I, I, know, know. I still have that heightened sense of alertness and, <laughs> and I am on guard and I do look around, but it's just yeah. that, you know, once you get past that and things yeah. are slowed down or calmed down, yeah. then that's where it's like, okay, let's find out what's going yeah. on here. Let's, no, let's get to know this so. person. Doing it, it, it makes it, it all, but it also sounds like, and it's like sort of something that I think I had to learn when I stepped away from my policing career, compassion. Like not that you don't have compassion as a police officer, but having compassion and learning, like you're saying, the the understanding the whys and what led you down this path and all that kind of thing. Like I think I think we're allowed to be that little bit softer when we do exit that career and, and it does open our eyes up a little bit wider because we have the opportunity to. You know, we don't we're not just that kind of narrow focus of of what sometimes it does take to be a police officer. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to, um, talk a little bit more about the, the mental health aspects. And I was just wondering, you know, when, I know we're going back a few years, so bear with me, but, um, when you entered the air force or even after your time in and then joined like the, um, Walnut Creek police department, what was the mental health education like back then? If, if anything, well, when I was in the military, I don't remember once ever talking about it or even thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I also know for me that none of my post-traumatic stress comes from the military. Okay. Um, and, I, and I know it does for a lot of people, but in my particular case, it actually all comes from my civilian law enforcement career. Mm-hmm. And I also know that they're two very different cultures. I think a lot of people think they're the same, but when I was in the military, I think there was a much stronger sense of real family, of camaraderie of teamwork. It was a lot closer relationships where, um, you know, in the, in the civilian law enforcement, I honestly saw it more as more cutthroat, more competitive, um, people out for their own, um, like to get promoted, you really had to like hold people accountable or to accountable under the bus. Like, (laughs) well, yeah, exactly. Throw people under the bus. And, um, and early on in my police career, I mean, I remember in the Academy, we talked about, dealing with other people's mental illness, like, um, like going on a welfare check and we called it 5150, but it would be, you know, somebody who is unable to care for themselves or gravely disabled. And so we did train on how to evaluate them on, you know, what we had to do if we came in contact with them, but we didn't do any training for ourselves or to prepare ourselves for this career of decades of all this horrible things that we are going to see and have to deal with. Now, um, a few years into my career, no, we had, you know, we had peer support teams. We had a contracted clinician or therapist. We did annual trainings, but even then nobody used it. Um, Nobody believed in it. The people that were on peer support back then to me were just like the kind of popular, likable people. They weren't really cops, cops, and they weren't really people that I would ever feel comfortable like opening up to. So 
on paper, it looked great. Like we had all these great policies and procedures and things in place, Yeah. but nobody was using it. And that's yeah. the thing is, you know, you can have the best programs in the world, but if nobody is using your program, if nobody is using your resources, then it's completely useless. It means nothing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that is that, that challenging aspect of, like you're saying, you can have all the options available, but like, you know, yeah, if, if a peer support person or none of them or anyone that you would trust with telling, you know, your, your struggles to, it's not, not worth it in the slightest. Exactly. Um, and you also talked about, um, so we sort of mentioned that towards like the end of your career, you medically retired. Um, and you also talked a lot of in your book about, I guess, a feeling of like complete and total lack of support from some of your superiors and your like police department um, in general. Are, are you able to to share with us a little bit how, how heavily that really impacted you on top of the the PTSI that you were already experiencing because there's, there's a term that not everyone sort of talks about or hears about. It's called like organizational trauma. And it really kind of sounds like that was something that you, you underwent on top of the trauma from your shooting. Yeah, I call it admin betrayal, administrative betrayal, or institutional okay. betrayal. Um, here's the interesting thing. When Doc Springer and I worked together to write this book, Mm -hmm. I was honestly hesitant to talk about some of this stuff. And yeah. I, I go into great detail in the book on mm -hmm. how my agency turned their back on me when I needed them most. But looking yeah. back now, so the book's been out, um, well, it'll be two years in April. I would say that the number one thing that's resonated with readers all over the world, so Canada, the UK, Australia, the United mm -hmm. States, even Spain, is the admin betrayal part and yeah. it in my opinion is the number one thing which is pushing officers over the edge to commit suicide um you know the thing is there's things that lead up to it so obviously the trauma the traumatic events that takes a toll on us and yeah. in my case it was when i needed help and initially my agency was very supportive they were giving me the help that i needed yeah. and i was making progress uh, my yeah. goal was to always go back to work Mm -hmm. But when my progress wasn't fast enough, um, you know, when I wasn't sure when I would be back to work, they didn't want me anymore. I found out that I was just a number filling a position, that they mm -hmm. wanted me to retire. Um, they didn't want to support me any longer, you know, that my recovery was not fast enough for them. And that's where they really, really turned their back on me. And there was a point, I'm not going to go into detail here, it's in the mm -hmm. book, but you know, I was literally making all this progress. I was months and months into my recovery mm -hmm. and they truly just, I mean, pushed me over the edge to the point where I did want to kill myself, not just put myself in a dangerous situation, but actually kill myself. And thank God at that point, I had already these established connections and resources outside my agency. And yeah. so I picked up my phone and I called the peer director of a program I now volunteer for. Mm -hmm. And we talked for a couple hours and he talked me down, but yeah. it was that admin betrayal, which hurt me the most. And to mm -hmm. this day, as we sit here, I still have anger and resentment on how I was treated on what happened. And yeah. what I've learned is I used to think it was only me, but what I found through this process of speaking all over the country, of doing podcasts all over the world, yeah. getting these daily messages that this is happening everywhere and it's happening mm -hmm much more frequently than anyone talks about or knows. And, and the fact is that we eat our own better than anyone else. But, but here's the sad thing, and we haven't talked about this yet during our interview, but suicide is the number one killer for all first responders and military. Yeah. So firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, military veterans, police officers, yeah. we are much more likely to die by the hands of another than the hands of an assailant on the battlefield or on the street. And yet, you know, we don't spend any time addressing that or making it a priority when we are, you know, our biggest threat. We are our own number one killer. Yeah. And, and it is, and it is such a, a sad and tragic statistic that people who perform these roles, especially police officers, especially firefighters, where literally on a daily basis, 
you do run the risk of losing your life. And like you're saying, and yet we lose more to suicide than in the line of duty. And that's, that's why, you know, you do what you do. I do what I do. We're trying to have these conversations to bring awareness to it, to try to encourage people to, to be open and talk about their struggles because, you know, it's, it's nothing that anyone wants. No. And like I said, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was alone and that nobody would understand me. And I could have been farther from the truth because the fact is there's actually endless resources out there. And there's tons and tons of our brothers and sisters who do understand us, who will get it and who will be there to support us. But we have to have the strength and courage to ask for help. We have to do that ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is such a a valid point too, because it, it is that, that, that old saying that, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Like there can be all those resources, resources. And even my, my friends over at the Overwatch Collective, you know, they have a wonderful organization where they pay for first responders, military veterans and spouses to, to receive therapy. So great organization. Yeah. So they'd be around your, around your area, wouldn't they out that way? Yes, they are. (laughs) Cool. Um, so yeah, so it's just, you know, it's, it's sad and it's tragic, but I, okay, here's a, here's a question uh, without notice. Do you, now that you've been in this space and, and written this book and getting all this feedback, do you feel like at all the tide is turning that people are feeling more supported to speak out or feeling like they have the courage and that it's the right thing to do and fighting against that stigma and that culture? I think there's been some change, but I think it's very slow. And um, what's interesting is I found that, so when I speak across the country, normally it's for like nonprofits that are helping first responders or Mm -hmm. for organizations that are are trying to make a difference. But very rarely, and I mean very rarely, do I have an actual like police agency who wants me to come in and talk about this stuff. Yeah. Um, And I've actually had some candid discussions with some police chiefs and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some thoughts out there that, and part of this is true, but I think that some people are abusing the system and I think some people are crying wolf. Yeah. Um, But you know, the fact is that if one person is truly suffering, we've got to support them. We have to bend over backwards because it can save their life. It can make that difference. You know, even if we have outliers of people, no different than a physical injury. You know, there's people that, yeah. you know, over-exaggerate or fake a back injury, a shoulder injury, those types of things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I still see that a lot of people who are suffering won't talk about this, won't bring it up because of the stigma associated with, yeah. with a physical injury. People have no problem coming forward and saying, look, you know, my back is killing me. I've been trying to do this job now for months and months and months, but I cannot take it anymore. Yeah. I need help. I need to see a doctor. I need medication. You know, I need to get better. Whereas people with this post-traumatic stress injury, because they've seen how others are treated, they see how other people are outcasted or how agencies turn their back on them. And so we have a lot more work to do. I mean, a lot more work to do. Um, And the suicide numbers, as good as they are, as far as the reporting, they're way Um, underreported. There's an organization called First Help. Yeah. Yeah, which tracks numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think for police alone, they're up to 100 suicides so far this year. Yeah, But I would say that's at least three to four times underreported. And yeah. we don't even know the real numbers. Yeah. And so, yeah, things are getting better, but we have so much more work to do. And we need our police leaders, our yeah. fire leaders to step up and be vulnerable themselves mm-hmm. and talk about the realities of how this job has impacted them how it's impacted their health, how it's impacted their families. That's what we need. That's what's going to make a difference. That's what's going to change the culture. But if we have police leaders that continue to push this under the rug to pretend like it doesn't exist, I've even had police leaders tell me they don't believe in post-traumatic stress injury. They think it's BS. These are actual, yes, police chiefs in charge of hundreds and hundreds of people, lives in their hands. And in 2023, they think it's BS. That's what we're dealing with. I mean, that's just disgraceful in a word, isn't it? Absolutely. And they're costing lives. Yeah. They're the ones that are pushing people over the edge. 
Exactly. Jesus Christ. Well, I, I can wholeheartedly say that myself and many others are appreciative of, of what you're doing and, and putting it out there because yeah, if, if we all play our role and even if it, even if it keeps taking time, if we just keep nudging it in the right direction, I think, I think that's what, what's going to institute the change that that's needed. Absolutely. And it's, it's one life at a time, you know, yeah. and if one life is saved, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was one thing that I wanted to sort of ask you about, and, and I sort of had this thought after I, I listened to your book and in it, you know, you obviously talk about your, you know, your stepfather's role in your life and, and that, um, you know, wanting to become a police officer from quite a young age and, and all that kind of thing. And, um, sort of looking back now in, in hindsight and the fact that now you've left and it wasn't under the, the greatest of circumstances, um, how important do you think that it is that for first responders overall and in particular law enforcement to not sort of solely tie their identity to their positions and to their roles so that if, you know, something happens, like they have to step away or they go down a different path, like it doesn't impact them as heavily as it can when the one thing that you identified yourself with so much gets taken away from you. It's critical. Um, and it's actually what I found, and, and I see this in the volunteer work that I do, is that a lot of times police officers or firefighters, they don't realize how messed up they are until a year or two after they retire. Yeah. When they've left the service, um, when they don't have that camaraderie, they don't have their friends around, and they start realizing they are alone. Um, yeah. Because unfortunately, and I, I'm, I don't think I'm the only one that believes this or has seen this, but when people leave an agency or they retire, they're literally usually forgotten about within a week or two. They're replaced. Yeah. The organization goes on. The mission goes on. The job goes on. Yeah. And if you put all your eggs in one basket and you think that that is your family, it's not. And that's where I messed up because in my career, I prioritized getting promoted, getting special assignments, um, working overtime. That's where I put my focus and my energy. I didn't put it with my friends and my family. And that's what matters most. Yeah. And so people realize that, you know, for me, it was a calling, but it's also just a job. Yeah. And someday you are going to leave it, whether you medically retire or you do a full 20 or 30 year career or you get physically mm -hmm. injured, whatever the case may be, yeah. you're eventually going to leave that career. Yeah. And what matters is what is the state of your family? What is the state of your friendships? You know, when you leave that job and now you're getting a divorce a year after and now you have nothing. Yeah. that's where you're going to find yourself in some darkness and you're going to realize, you know, how isolated you've been and how you've cut everyone off. And so okay. my advice is establish these healthy relationships outside of the job, you know, in mm -hmm. your community, um, be, make your family, whether it's your, your children, your partner, your spouse, make them the number one priority in your life, not your job, not yeah. your career. That is the best advice I can give anybody. And, and I made that mistake. I don't make that mistake now. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as what I do now in speaking, I limit my speaking to four to five times a year max. Mm -hmm. My focus is my daughter. Yeah. My focus is being here for her and being present. Yeah. No. And thank you for, for sharing that because I think your perspective is, is really important. So thank you, Michael. Um, I know you um, have to take off shortly, so I have about three questions left for you. Um, um, basically, I just wanted to, uh, you know, if we can, just like a very quick overview of what Relentless Courage is, because obviously we've referenced it a lot here. Um, I know you can't delve like too in depth, but just kind of like a, a quick brief overview and, and where people are, are able to, to find it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Relentless Courage, winning the battle against frontline trauma, co-authored with Dr. Shauna Springer. So mm -hmm. first of all, I want to talk about her. So Dr. Shauna Springer is a Harvard graduate. She's a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. She's worked with combat veterans, with the Veterans Affairs, with Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. She's worked with first responders. She is an expert in trauma. She is culturally mm -hmm. competent. She truly gets us and understands us. Um, we actually met on a fluke. We met on LinkedIn. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. 
Wow. Um, we had a conversation and eventually that led to us collaborating to writing mm -hmm. this book right before COVID happened. Yeah. And this book is very unique. There is nothing else out there like that. I'm going to tell you why. So um, the, the very unique structure of it is that every chapter has two parts. The first part is my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood until mm -hmm. present day. But the second half of every chapter, Doc Springer comes in. She breaks everything down. She explains it in yeah. very easy to understand terms so that anybody reading this book, whether you, even if you don't know a single first responder or military member, you're going to understand it. You're going to get it. And you're going to see the human behind the badge. You're going to see why this job impacts us so much, why it impacts our family. And she's going to offer solutions and answers of healing. And that's the key is that, you know, usually you have to pick either like a gut-wrenching, gripping story and that's it. Or you go pick up like a psychological textbook and you learn about psychology and post-traumatic stress and anxiety and, you know, depression, all these things. But no, in this book, you get everything in one and it's totally balanced. But what I think is really cool is that this book is living proof of the collaboration, what can be done between a first responder and a culturally competent clinician. So this book, it's groundbreaking. And um, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, it's on Amazon mm -hmm. um, in Australia, in Canada, in the UK, all yeah. over the US. Um, mm -hmm. It's available in paperback, uh, Kindle, yep. um, hardcover. Audible. Audible. Yes, and we waited a year after. I wish we would have done it sooner. The Audible hasn't even been out for a full year yet, but yeah. It's in our own voices, so you're going to hear mm -hmm. Doc Springer. Yeah. You're going to hear me. It's going to have emotion. It's going to have feelings. It's straight yeah. from the heart. It yeah. is going to blow your socks off. And this book was a bestseller for over 34 weeks mm -hmm. in Canada and the U.S. And, yeah. and I guarantee that if anybody gets this, you won't be able to put it down. Absolutely guarantee it. Yeah. No, I was actually just on a podcast last week with uh, Ian from A Healthy Shift and he like, held it up at the end of our interview and he was like, have you read this? I'm like, I'm talking to him next week. So he was like, I was just about to, um, you know, tell you to go jump on it. I'm like, I've already read it, buddy. Already read it. Um, so yeah, so I listened on Audible. Um, like Michael has just explained, it is there's the only other person I know doing anything similar at the moment is Travis Gribble where he goes and gives presentations and he brings along his therapist and it's exactly the the, the same but your concept is like your it's your story and then it, and I look I love listening to someone tell their own story because I feel like there's intonations and the way that they say things and the the um the what, what am I trying to say like the, the voice inflections. Yeah, yes. that they put on certain words and everything. Like, I just think that that is just so much, you know, more powerful. And especially for a story like yours, you know, like print is great. And I recommend anyone, you know, you're going to go sit on a beach in Australia during the summertime or curl up in front of the fire in the Northern Hemisphere, go right ahead and grab it. Um, or yeah, listen on Audible. And yeah, to have that balance, like you're saying of like your lived experience and then I hope it's okay if I refer to her as Doc Springer. Um, yes. Doc, Doc Springer, like just explaining the psychology behind it. And, you know, I myself am a psychology student. So it, it really, it just balances it up so well, like you're saying that, it, but it's it's explained in the way to like a layperson who you don't have to have any psychological experience. You don't have to be a therapist. It just goes, this is what Michael just told us. This is what was going on with him inside his head, inside his body. This is what, this is the cause and effect. And for, yes. like you're saying, for, for first responders, for, for civilians who've gone through any kind of trauma in their life, childhood, work-related natural disaster related to have that explained to you so many people I can just imagine would reach out and be like I get it like now I know not what's wrong with me but now I know why I'm going through what I'm going through and why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing so to be changing lives of people through something that you've written I think that I, I hope it feels amazing it's my mission in life. I mean, this is what I'm dedicated to. It's it's a fight that I'm never going to stop. And yeah. um, for me, it's having purpose. This is my purpose. And yeah. I know God put me here today for a reason. And, and this mm -hmm. is the reason.
No, that's that's wonderful, Michael. Um, all right, we normally finish this podcast by asking our guests two quick questions. So obviously the name of the podcast is I Will Hold Space for Your Darkness. Um, it is basically uh, about the, the fact, and, and you've even said it a couple of times yourself, that our first responder roles can involve, you know, such darkness that we that we bear witness to. And so the, the first question I'd like to ask is, what do you do to hold space for your own darkness? It's, it's not an easy question. Um, for me, it's, it's a matter of, I guess, having respect for it and understanding where it came from and that mm -hmm. at certain times I was powerless over it. But now that's not the case. Um, I do have power over it. And so th there's there's actually a balance that goes on there. Whereas I think early on years ago, the the darkness had a hold of me, and, and now that's not the case. Yeah. Um, now it's more of an awareness and a respect, and and knowing that, you know what, I am going to be triggered. There are going to be reminders, and how to center myself again after that happens. Mm -hmm. oh, I I love that answer. Thank you for sharing. That's wonderful. Um, and secondly, the last question that I want to ask is what can someone do for you in order to like support you and help you hold space for your darkness in that respect? Um, honestly, it's sharing their story. It's realizing by my example that, you know, I, I'm not special and I'm not unique. And I tell people this all the time, like nothing I've been through, nothing I've done in my opinion is special or unique. I'm just willing to talk about it. That's mm -hmm. the difference. Um, that's what does make me unique. Um, but like I said early on that we all have a story mm -hmm. and if you keep it into yourself and you never get it off your shoulders, if you never share it, yeah. it's going to, it's going to hold power over you mm -hmm. and it's going to cause damage. It's going to cause harm. Um, but I can guarantee you that every time that you share, just like every time I share some of that burden comes off and more healing takes place. So, um, all I could ask is that you consider, getting to a safe environment, a safe point where you can share your story with somebody you trust. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that answer with us today, Michael. Um, Absolutely. so you are on Instagram, Facebook, you have a few different handles. So if you want to reel them off quickly and then I can pop them in, in the show notes as well. Yeah, so I'm on everything. I'm on TikTok. I'm <laughs> oh, on uh, Reels, yeah. Instagram, yeah. Um, even Parlor Truth. I mean, stuff that people haven't heard of. But the main way to find me is type in Sergeant Michael Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E. Mm -hmm. um, I check messages daily. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to get a hold of me as far as like a speaking engagement or something work-related, I'd recommend LinkedIn. Okay. LinkedIn is, is the number one platform for that. Cool. Uh, but the other handle that I'm associated with is First Responders First. Yeah. Um, for that one, it's only on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. And I also run a private Facebook group, um, which I vet every member. Mm -hmm. And anybody that supports First Responders or military, they can join it. But it's also called First Responders First. Okay. All right. I will... Um try to pop as much of that as I can in the, in the show notes. Um, and yeah, like I was saying, please uh, reach out to Michael if you're interested in having him come and come and speak, follow him on all the social media platforms because he puts out really wonderful content. Um, and please go and purchase, listen to all of the things Relentless Courage with him and Doc Springer, because I guarantee you will get a lot of value out of it. And one thing I ask before we go is that if yeah, somebody does listen to or read the book, mm -hmm. please, please reach out to me because I do want to hear your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you right now, when I get those messages every day, yeah. it makes my entire day. Yeah. And I will get back to you. I will respond to you. But if you would consider just reaching out to me and letting me know your thoughts, mm -hmm. the good, the bad, the ugly, I want to hear all of it. Just please yeah. let me know and share it with me. Yeah. Feedback is important. And um, if you do happen to purchase, listen, read all of those things and you love it as much as I did, jump on whatever platform you purchased it from and give it a five-star review and leave your comment there so that people who, you know, come after you know that, it, know that it's worthwhile. Absolutely. It's going to change <laughs> your life. Guaranteed. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this has been another episode of I Will Hold Space for Your Darkness. I've been your host, Erin Jane. And as always, let me listen in a way you've never been hurt. Cheers. Hi, guys. It's Erin Jane here. Firstly, thank you for listening to I Will Hold Space for Your Darkness. This podcast really is for you, the listener. And I hope you're finding as much value in listening to these conversations as I am in having them. If you'd like to offer any feedback, suggest a subject matter, are interested in being a podcast guest, or would like to get in contact to receive first responder life and wellness coaching services, please reach out. You can find me on Instagram at Erin Jane Coaching or my website, www.erinjanecoaching.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I'm so grateful to have you as part of this darkness community. Cheers.